Hello and welcome. I'm Sean Westerman and I'm a Senior Advisor in Rothschild & Co's Global Financial Advisory Division, specialising in retail and luxury M&A. I'm also involved on the boards of a number of retail, luxury and skincare brands, including Fennec, Roxander, Nicholas Kirkwood and Augustinus Bada. And I sit on the board of the British Fashion Council, chair its business and investment pillar and co-chair its charitable grant giving initiative, the Fashion Trust. I'm really pleased to be joined today to talk about retail by Stephanie Fair. Stephanie has a wealth of experience and a unique perspective on the industry. She is Chief Customer Officer and a member of the Executive Committee of Farfetch, the global platform for luxury fashion. As Chief Customer Officer, she is responsible for leading their consumer-oriented functions, including marketing, brand, consumer products, private client, and store of the future, as well as their overall strategy. Before Farfetch, she was founder and president of TheOutnet.com and was part of the executive team of the Netaporte Group. She's an advisor for venture capital firm Felix Capital, which has invested in a number of interesting lifestyle brands, including Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop, Anine Bing, Peloton and Deliveroo. And she sits on the board of Montclair SBA, the luxury outerwear business. As if she wasn't busy enough, in May 2018, Stephanie was appointed as chairman of the British Fashion Council, the industry body promoting the UK's fashion excellence in creativity, business and education to a global audience. Stephanie, welcome. One of the defining and immediate aspects of the coronavirus crisis has been the closing of physical non-essential retail and people working from and staying at home. Even though non-essential retail has opened up in the UK, things are still not really back to how they were before. I hesitate to say normal, because I'm not sure what that is going to be going forward. But Farfetch has a very particular business model. As an online platform where people can find luxury fashion, it originally started out as enabling independent boutiques from around the world to reach a wider audience. Now it allows brands to sell directly as well. Farfetch has obviously not closed down like the physical retail boutique stores, but can you talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted your business and how have you defined what Farfetch is in an increasingly noisy online space? Yes, thank you, Sean, and thanks uh, for, for having me on the podcast. Delighted to, uh, to do this. Um, so yes, it's been, it's been a very interesting time, and I guess for all management teams and and um and and C suite executives, it's been um an, an absolute roller coaster. I guess if if we go back a couple of months um and think about um the sort of period that this this pandemic starting in kind of early January when we were thinking about what was happening because as a global business we were seeing what was coming out of China. Um we have to remember that first and foremost it's a humanitarian and a people crisis. And so our first thoughts were with our team, um, with the fact that we're such a global business and um, with the fact that we were um, going to need to deal with um, with different requirements and people's concerns and people's health um, uh, uh, concerns. So there was a lot of scenario planning and thinking around uh, uh, people and employment and following government mandates and having different mandates coming from different countries. So I think that's, you know, perhaps pretty similar to most global 
um, global businesses. Um, and then you get to the sort of uh, challenges and opportunities from a business standpoint. Um, and, you know, very, very interesting times for us. Um, but I guess if I had to summarize it, it really is where Farfetch's business model has come into its own. Um, Jose Nevis, the founder of Farfetch, started Farfetch in 2008, pretty much at the beginning or just as the, as the worst recession the world had seen up until then was peaking. And his idea was there is an opportunity to connect these beautiful boutiques all around the world that have such an amazing point of view and a curation and allow them to sell their stock online to a global audience. And it was very much a division of labor. They have the brand connections, they have the supply, they have the curation, the curatorial eye, but Farfetch had the technology. And in many cases, when the recession hit, this opportunity for the boutiques, this channel, was really their lifeline. So then you fast forward 10 years and COVID, uh, Farfetch's business model has in many ways been an absolute lifeline for a community of boutiques, as you stated in your question. Uh, these boutiques close their doors, um, and a lot of our boutique partners are in Italy, and we know how badly Italy was affected, and uh, particularly northern Italy. And they had to close their doors and stop trading um, to to footfall audience. But in many cases, um, they were allowed to continue to ship. That was an aspect of lockdown which did not stop. And so Farfetch allowed them to continue to sell to a global audience. Um, and really, this is something where perhaps from a consumer standpoint, if people hadn't completely understood the business model, because I guess they couldn't understand the difference between a normal e-commerce site, a store, a retailer, a marketplace, suddenly the fact that we could communicate to the customer, um, you know, support boutiques, shop from the world's best boutiques, um, you know, keep family businesses running, this suddenly became a theme. And you can see this in many other, you know, there have been lots of hashtag small business campaigns and people wanting to buy locally. And this was very much that, but in the context of fashion. So it's been a very, very interesting time, um, both from a people and employment standpoint, and then also from a business model and um, challenges, uh, uh, but certainly opportunity as well. Just picking up on the point about um, local shopping and people being keen to support lo local boutiques, that sort of suggests that, that uh, consumers have a sense of purpose when they shop now, that perhaps they didn't before the, um, this most recent crisis. Is, is that something that you're picking up? When they spend, spend well. And I think you're touching on something that wasn't pre and post-COVID. I think it was already happening uh, pre-COVID. Um, you know, we, we've seen it very much, you and I, in our, in our British Fashion Council work, which is that increasingly the consumer is, is, is choosing to buy more sustainably. For example, brands that have a, um, a sustainable um, aspect to their business and to support the environment, but also core marketing. Brands are not just about the product they sell or the transaction, but also about what they stand by. And, uh, and I think this was already happening um, before COVID, um, but in many ways, so many trends have been accelerated with COVID. This moment, this sort of um, huge systemic shock to the industry, not just fashion, but all industries, has caused people to really think. And in some, in some cases, it stopped things, but in many, it's accelerated the move to online, but also, to your point, this concept that people 
um, want to put their money where their values are. And uh, and probably um, you know one of the one one of the starkest examples of that is what we're seeing with Black Lives Matter, where businesses um, are not only having to prove that they are a good employer um, and that they don't have sort of um, systemic uh, issues within their business, but actually going further and saying what are they actively doing. To promote diversity and customers care about that um, deeply. So I think it's a, it's a trend that's driven certainly by the millennial and Gen Z mindset, um, and they're yeah. becoming a bigger part of the population. And so we're 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 seeing that uh, flow through. I think the, the this acceleration of trends is is a really interesting feature of um, of what's come out of the the pandemic and. I think you know possibly the headline acceleration has been the trend towards online shopping. Obviously, Farfetch was predominantly online, but do do you think that that consumers are going to continue to to buy online as they have done during this crisis, or do you think people will revert um, to to going to bricks and mortar stores? And if so, what's actually going to drive them? to those stores to sort of brave putting on a mask and and um hitting the high street mm-hmm. so i guess uh I, I guess the short answer is yes i i think there'll be a continued acceleration to online um those mm-hmm. people that were already shopping online are probably shopping more online they're already comfortable and maybe a bigger percentage of what they do is online and then we're also seeing those who weren't shopping online adopted because they didn't have a choice during the the pandemic so um, you know, and by all accounts, you 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 have studies by um, by Bain and McKinsey that had pre-COVID been estimated that maybe the percentage of of, of online penetration in luxury would be 20 to 25 percent, and it's actually looking more like 30 percent. Um, so absolutely an acceleration. Um, that said, um, you know, I would say Farfetch is both an online and and an offline business in many ways because our partners are, by definition, predominantly offline. They are, um, you know, we have thousands of points of distribution through our partners. And we believe, and this is our store of the future unit, we believe that in many ways the future of retail is going to be a really seamless combination of both, where the customer is at the center and where a brand or a marketplace um, understands that a customer is neither an online shopper nor an offline shopper, and they're not an online shopper one day and an offline shopper the next, they are both. And so um, that seamless experience will mean that there is absolutely a role to play for offline. And you you asked what, what should that look like and what will drive people into store? You know, I think, while there's still a lot of social distancing and masks, probably <laughs> the barrier is very, very high to get people to come. But once we get to, you know, let's call it a new normal, I guess, um, it will have to be experience. It will have to be experiential. It will have to be a destination. People will have to want to go in store because they get something that goes beyond a transactional uh, moment. And they get theatre. And, uh, and, and we really... Um, believe that and you know Farfetch did an innovation partnership with Chanel which is ongoing where we designed um, journeys for their top customers uh, in store Um, and it really is about that human interaction between the fashion associate and the customer and 
And actually, the technology, surprisingly, is very much um, hidden in the background and secondary. So people will want that human interaction, but they want it powered by technology. Yeah. And and, and actually, I, I guess that's where there are huge opportunities in terms of, you know, the technology to drive the seamless interaction and to create a sense of presence um, and theatre and animation wh- wherever the customer is. Uh, offline, certainly, because there are the yeah. people. But online, we're seeing uh, 3D and um, augmented reality or mixed reality. And we're seeing, um, you know, gaming, for example, being increasingly a part of, of people's experiences in retail. Uh, we have a partnership with Dressed, for example. Um, so... Uh, it, it really is going to be much more merged together. And so I'm very optimistic that the future of retail is really, really exciting. But brands and retailers and the industry have to be willing to reset. I think moving beyond COVID, I think you, you touched on it earlier, Stephanie, that uh, the fashion industry has been wrestling with with a really vast number of, of issues for many, many years, be it climate change and the role of fashion and fashion shows and production timetables in um, what that means for climate change, the treatment of models and others in the industry, the need for inclusivity and diversity. And uh, as you pointed out, that inclusivity and diversity debate has been very clearly and, uh, and correctly accelerated to a very prominent position on the agenda in recent weeks. And alongside that has been a, a debate about how our industry, which contributes £32 billion to the UK economy and pre-COVID was employing just short of 900,000 people, can grow and contribute effectively um, to the British economy and to the global economy. And I know that with your BFC hat on, and both our BFC hats on, the BFC has been very uh, very busy recently. Um, Firstly, a few weeks ago, the BFC with the CFDA in America announced their um, manifesto to sort of reset uh, reset fashion just a couple of weeks ago in conjunction with uh, London Fashion Week, which was the first ever gender neutral and fully digital fashion week. You unveiled the Institute of Positive Fashion, and now you're working on a more detailed manifesto for uh, the fashion industry. Do you want to sort of talk a little bit about what that manifesto is? I know it's very much work in progress, but can you just give a flavour as to what what it comprises and and what you think is needed uh, for the, the, the industry for the future? Yes, of course. And I guess this could be an answer from both of us, really, because we're uh, we're, we're working on, on this together. But I think, um, you know, to, to go back to your point, there are a huge number of issues um, in, in the fashion industry. I, I mean, I guess every industry grapples with their own systemic issues. and But there have been many that have really been um, uh, debated for a long time. And, and something like COVID, uh, we hope, gives an opportunity to stop, rethink and reset. And we've certainly urged the industry to do that. And collaboration is the first step. And I talk about it a lot coming from the tech industry, where the tech industry is actually quite collaborative between competitors, a sort of co-opetition model. Um, not because I think they're particularly any nicer or less nice or nice, but because they realize that they're big things that you can do um, by collaborating. And I, I'm not sure that the fashion industry has had that approach. 
but certainly that collaboration is important and we saw it in the shared um, um, a statement that we issued with the Council of Fashion Designers of America. But I guess going back to what those big messages around reset are, if we want to think about what our purpose is as a council, the British Fashion Council, the CFDA, it's really, you know, we're an industry body, we're a marketing platform for the industry, and it's to champion the growth of the fashion industry. But growth means many different things, and it's not anymore just growth from a top-line perspective. And that can be broken down in many ways. So um, one is um, something that you and I have talked a lot about, which is uh, growth and creativity. Um, they are not mutually exclusive. You can be commercial and creative. And in order to have a sustainable fashion industry for the UK, we need to encourage our designers to uh, really understand from the get-go um, the, the, the commercials of their business, hire the right people, and really build their creativity within parameters that allow for, you know, economically sustainable growth. So that's one kind of growth. And then there's growth that's sustainable growth from an environmental standpoint. Um, and sustainability has been a massive topic um, in the fashion industry because we know that the fashion industry contributes immensely to um, to the carbon footprint and, and climate change. And I'm very, very proud um, of the British Fashion Council, both during my tenure, but also uh, certainly uh, before my time, in many ways, thanks to Caroline Rush, um, the CEO, and Natalie Massonet, my predecessor, to have hugely championed the cause of, of, of sustainability in fashion and to have really brought that topic to the forefront when no one really wanted to talk about it. And so growing sustainably is not only a marketing play for brands anymore, it's actually an economic um, necessity to grow because um, we're seeing the consumer, we talked about it earlier, moving to businesses that are more sustainable. Um, but also we're seeing other things. We're seeing, you know, banks making loans to companies um, with uh, terms that are built in around sustainability. We're seeing the European Union create green growth funds. Um, so this is increasingly going to become part of legislation and companies that don't adapt to sustainable environmental practices will be will be left behind. So that's the other one. And the Institute of Positive Fashion uses the convening power of the BSC to bring all of that information together to help our designers and any designer really globally um, uh, to, to think about that as they as they grow their business. And then I would say the third one is around people um, and people practices and um, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and, and the need to really have businesses represent the customer that they are speaking to uh, is, again, n not just something that you have as a sideline, but absolutely um, the right thing to do and a business necessity. So all of that um, for us feeds into how we think of ourselves as championing the growth of the, of the fashion industry and being a leading voice in bringing up these topics that are sometimes difficult um, but that we feel that we have the ability to bring people around the table and provide level of expertise and, and authority. So, um, so those are, you know, to, to a very complex big question, uh, uh, quite a long <laughs> answer, I guess. I wonder, Stephanie, can you talk a little bit, you know, about um, uh, diversity and inclusion? I, I mean, I, I think 
you know, in the fashion industry, there are some amazing um, high profile figureheads and success stories, whether it's Edward Enifal, who's the, the editor of Vogue in the UK, Vanessa Kilgory, who's the publisher. We have Grace Wells Bonner, the, the amazing designer. Uh, Naomi Campbell, who's a fantastic model, but also a, a huge philanthropist. But I think that as an industry, much more is needed um, to encourage a more diverse uh, group of people to come in at the grassroots level, but also to see more more leaders. Are, are you able to talk a little bit about what the, the BFC is seeing and what, what initiatives the BFC has to help younger generations move into the industry from, from whatever background? In terms of pipeline of talent, uh, it's absolutely one of the areas that we believe um, will really lead to a more diverse industry because in many ways, um, there's there's whole um, number of, of young people who don't know that their jobs uh, in the industry that are available to them or schools don't tell them about uh, roles that might fit their skill set. Uh, they don't know to ask for that when they're looking at career. Um, and so there are a number of things that the BFC has done over the years. One, for example, is the Saturday Club, which is partnering with um, with universities and colleges. And it's for 11 to 13 year olds to give them a taste of what the fashion industry looks like. And it often operates in um, perhaps more uh, deprived areas to really be able to give um, these children, uh, you know, hopefully a positive taste of, uh, of a career in an industry that um, does have a lot of opportunity and, um, and certainly would embrace a lot of diversity of, uh, of thought. So uh, that's one aspect. We've really supported through the BFC Foundation uh, a lot of grants to, um, to students who would otherwise not be able to afford their studies because we believe that creativity um, should not be you know, stimmied by um, economic ability to pay. We've also done a lot around, um, and Sean, you know this better than anyone, a lot of um, uh, grants and, um, and awards that really allow creatives and designers to, um, to build up their businesses. So whether it's, uh, it's New Gen or the BFC Vogue Fashion Fund or, or the Fashion Trust. And so we really believe that pipeline is, is one way to go. Um, we also think that uh, in a similar way to the Institute of Positive Fashion, which is certainly about sustainability, but also about people. So we talk about planet and, and people. We can use our convening power to help um, educate businesses about what to look for, how to build more diverse teams, um, and, and hopefully, you know, set standards and, and an example. So, you know, there, there's still lots to do, um, but I'm confident that because the BFC has never shied away from difficult problems and has never um, not taken, uh, uh, used its position and its platform to help uh, move move the industry forward for good, um, this is something that, um, you know, certainly Caroline and the board is very focused on and will continue to work on. Uh, I, I think that's really important that, you know, the industry is so forward looking and, you know, particularly with creative talents, which are, it, it's very different from, say, a, you know, a business brain or a financial brain, um, giving support to creativity um, and creating an environment where they can thrive and, and grow has, has been really important. And I think you touched on the, on, on the grant giving. 
that um, I think has been absolutely critical, particularly when uh, the British Fashion Council decided to pool all the resources that we had and gave out grants of over a million pounds to 40 sort of young designers who, who really needed help to get through the, uh, the immediate effect of the crisis. I wonder if, yes. if to end, we could end on a sort of really, uh, you know, a positive note. And I think that, you know, coming out of, a, of the crisis and, and given everything that's going on in the industry, you know, historically challenging times give rise to opportunities and opportunities to, to invest. And I wondered if, you know, you, you've clearly had the foresight in your career to sort of, you know, you, you were in off price before it was it was fashionable. You invented the sort of off-price market with it with with the outnet and then you know with farfetch which is, is a very new uh model for for fashion where where do you think the opportunities lie for the industry for people either you know wanting to come into the industry or wanting to invest in the industry or, or wanting to play a role you know in, in in the future yeah i think lots of areas i think um i think fashion tech is going to become um, much, much more important. Um, and I think uh, it's going to become, you know, not to use a pun, but part of the fabric of the industry because the consumer by definition is more uh, more tech savvy and they're going to want it, uh, not just as a sort of side gimmick. Um, often fashion and luxury brands have seen technology as a kind of, uh, you know, marketing one-upmanship between each other, but really as part of their service and their storytelling and part of what they do. So I think lots of interesting fashion tech companies um, that provide better experiences and services to customers. I think any businesses and technologies that, you know, are, are helping to move forward the agendas for change and those topics that we talked about, whether it's sustainability or community or diversity and inclusion those are really, really essential, and and I think we'll see a lot of success because they're they're addressing some of the biggest um, issues of our time and issues that we need, we have to face head on and and solve. So I think uh, companies and uh, that embrace that, or you know, companies that provide solutions for that for others will be will be really important. And then I'm, I, I guess I'm an optimist and I really, really hope um, that there's a silver lining to this crisis and that all the things we have been saying about resetting and slowing down and thinking about quality and, um, and thinking about how do we, we solve this sort of question of overproduction. I, I really hope that that, that that will happen. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm optimistic and, and, uh, and I think that, you know, it's an, it's an incredibly adaptable industry and it certainly touches on, um, people's emotions. So it's not about to go away. It just very much needs to adapt. And one last, maybe trivial question. Um, I know that you're not sitting, uh, doing this podcast in, in, in sweatpants and, um, or even your pajamas. Uh, but I think that a lot of people have been saying that, you know, people, dress is going to change forever and certainly uh, dress for work. You know, do you, from what you've seen uh, uh, at Farfetch, do you think that this is the end of wearing uh, dresses and high heels, business suits and, dare I say it, ties, that uh, we're all going to 
wear sort of elasticated waists and and flats going <laughs> forward. Well, I, you know, who knows if 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 the work, um, uh, the the new new normal of work is 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 virtual working. I definitely think that's going to have an impact on uh, on what people wear. But then people will want to dress up even more when they go out uh, versus the kind of all round casual approach because they will want. A little bit of that of that change. Um, I guess change in um, attire was happening already. You know, Farfetch is a tech fashion business. Um, you know, so unlike Rothschild, perhaps where um, where there was still very much a kind of smart casual business suit. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a Gen Z and millennial uh, led company, and you know, trainers are not only the norm; they're probably expected at work, <laughs> particularly if you have the coolest coolest kicks from stadium goods so um so i think um i i think it is changing but i think uh it's changing perhaps into other categories into new categories i think you know we've seen we've seen streetwear really emerge and that's not not going away we're seeing um you know active wear remain a really really important category and then maybe casual wear will somehow take on um uh a level of quality that maybe we'd not seen before. So, you know, personally, uh, and this sounds crazy, but I invested for the first time in my life in cashmere sweatpants. <laughs> Never done that before. The definition of luxury. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time uh, and insight. Thank you, Sean. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.